Well, good morning, everyone. This side's doing good. How's this side? All right, there we go. There we go. Hey, welcome to Solid Rock Church. We are super thankful that you have chosen to worship with us today. And if you are tuning in uh, online, we want to welcome you as well. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jeremy, and I have the opportunity and privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And we just want to thank you so much for choosing to be with us today as we worship together. So over the last few weeks, we have been in the book of Jonah, right? And um, I look forward to continuing in this series this morning. In fact, if you have your Bible, please go ahead and take it and turn to Jonah chapter 3. That's where we will be camping out this morning. And if you do not own a Bible, there should be a Bible around you in the area that you're seated that we would encourage you to take and utilize this morning. Now, many of you may know that uh, my wife, Lauren, and I have one daughter, and her name is Emma, and she is about three years old. And something that Lauren and I have been working on quite a bit lately is the concept of of boundaries with Emma. And that's important for for all parents to, to practice in, you know, raising children, right? And so that's what we've been doing. Uh, Boundaries help us to teach children to learn to take responsibility for themselves and for their actions, and and teaching boundaries can be beneficial for adults as well. It allows us as adults to not have to deal with the drama most of the time. Uh, It also allows us to empathize with the feelings of our kids whenever they violate a boundary and we are forced to uh, discipline them. And For example, one thing that Lauren and I are currently dealing with by way of boundaries is having dessert after a meal, okay? Anybody have a two to four-year-old in here, have dealt with that at some point in your life? Okay, so some of you know what I'm talking about. Cool. Um, Well, we teach Emma, the boundary here is you have this meal that you are supposed to eat, and if you do not eat an adequate amount of the food that we have told you that you need to eat, then you will not get a dessert, And believe it or not, she likes to push that boundary a little bit, right? If we're parents, we've done this before. uh, And she tries to negotiate or or pretend like she didn't hear us. But but, but dad, but but, but mom, right? None of us have ever experienced that before. Uh, And we have to just stick with the boundary that we have set. We need her to understand that the answer is no. You don't eat the food that we told you that you need to eat. Then the consequence is you do not get a dessert. And as you might expect, she cries when she doesn't get her way. And truthfully, we feel bad in the moment, most of the time. But at the end of the day, we need her to understand that she's making a choice. And choices have consequences. And we've realized that that having clear boundaries allows us to be on Emma's side, to have compassion, and to have empathy for her while also teaching her that consequences, there are consequences for violating the boundaries that we've put into place. And make no mistake, we are not perfect at this. We are still working. We only have one kid. She's three years old, but she's still alive. We're thankful for that, so we're doing something, right? Uh, But we are definitely a work in progress, as I might suspect many of you who are parents would say the same. So why in the world would I begin with this this morning? Why would I explain this to you this morning? Well, here's why. I think that what I've said here about boundaries is similar to what we see God doing in Jonah's life in chapter 3. And I think he does the same thing in our own lives as well. God has given us boundaries in life, right? And these are boundaries that are for our good. 
But often we as human beings don't always operate that way. We want to be in control. We want to be the ones calling the shots. We don't like to remain within boundaries, do we? So today, as we read through chapter 3, we are going to see God's boundaries in Jonah's life, and not just in Jonah's life, but in the life of the Ninevites, and we are going to see what each character's response is in Jonah chapter 3 to those boundaries that God has set. So please take your Bible, if you have it, Jonah chapter 3, and let's take a look at verse 1. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, same. Now, right off the bat, we need to understand that that is a significantly profound statement. Remember in chapter one, when Jonah was told by God to go to Ninevites the first time, what did he do? Did he just trot along? Yeah, God, let's go do it. No, no, we read in chapter one that, that he actually goes the opposite direction and he tries to flee from God. God called him to go and tell the Ninevites they needed to repent. Their wickedness was too much. And he chose to go to Tarshish instead. Yet despite his obedience, we saw in chapter two that God preserved Jonah's life in the belly of a fish. Now in chapter three, God has come and given Jonah a second chance and come to him a second time. That's a big deal. God could have said, fine, Jonah, I'll find somebody else, but he didn't. He gave Jonah a second chance. And notice, God had not changed the boundary. We don't open chapter three by God saying, all right, Jonah, you don't have to go anymore. I'll go ahead and just get somebody else to go, some other prophet to go. God had not changed the boundary. He continued to tell Jonah, hey, you have a responsibility that I have given you. This is a boundary that I've put on your life. You need to go and tell the Ninevites what I said for you to tell them. And what happens this time? After prayer and humility in the belly of a fish, which I think would change my mind too, I want you to listen to what chapter 3 says. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Verse 3 tells us that Jonah obeys the word of the Lord and goes to Nineveh. And let's talk about Nineveh for, for a second. Historically, Nineveh was a very large city. There was a lot of greatness in the city of Nineveh. What I mean by that is they were of great size, of great wealth, of great power, of great prestige. But on the other hand, they were a city of great wickedness. In fact, the Bible says that this, this city was so big that it would take three days just to make it through the city as a whole. And so as we move on to verse 4, it says that Jonah traveled that first day like God told him to do, and then listen to what he tells the Ninevites in verse 4. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Shall be overthrown. And then what happens? Do the Ninevites run him out of town? Do they threaten him and say, hey, you better get out of here or else? No, that's not what happens. Look at verse 5. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And we'll talk more about verse 5 and the implications there and what that all means. But let's think about Jonah for a moment. Remember, God had given Jonah a second chance. And Jonah finally obeys what God had told him to do. Way to go, Jonah! Jonah had finally done something right. And I want to tell you today, I really believe that in Jonah's life, this is an example of repentance. Now, I don't know if you know what that word means. Maybe you've heard it in church circles. Maybe you haven't, I don't know. But I do think it's important for us to understand what repentance means. And we're actually going to be talking about it a lot throughout this sermon this morning. So here's what it means. According to a Bible dictionary, it says this. In its fullest sense, repentance is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. So does Jonah repent? Well, there's been a lot of debate here. Some people say yes, some people say no, because if you read on in chapter 4, Jonah still has a pretty bad attitude, and we'll talk about that next week. But I believe that he does repent with his actions. He obeys with his actions, while his attitude and his understanding may be a little bit in error. He loves God and wants to act in obedience to God, but he still doesn't understand God's desire to show the Ninevites compassion and grace. And I think, like Jonah, many of us lack an understanding of God's grace. We want grace when it comes to us. Yes, God, give me grace all day long. Yes, I messed up. God, I need your grace. But we don't want grace for our enemies, do we? Think about that. We talk about hating sin and loving the sinner, but I think often that's just lip service because in our hearts, we practice differently. This morning, I want to challenge you to think about how you feel towards those who disagree with you or who have wronged you. Are you simply trying to be tolerant of them or are you willing to work for their good? There's a big difference in that. I'm not just asking, are you willing to put up with them, or are you willing to not hurt them, even when you think they deserve it? But are you willing to work for their good? Because that's the type of grace and compassion we receive from God, isn't it? When he says to love our enemies, that's the kind of love that he's talking about. And the truth is, we don't want to show our enemies that kind of love. We don't want to show those who have wronged us that kind of love, but we must. Why? Because that's what God has called us to do. Remember, He is the Creator and we are the created. There's a subordinate relationship there. We need to do what God has called us to do. And so as Jonah began his mission, he proclaims this message to God, which to the Ninevites was, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then there's a couple of words here in this message that Jonah gives to the Ninevites that I want us to pay attention to. The first one is the word 40. That's pretty significant. You may or may not know this, but 40 has actually some significance and some symbolism in Scripture, and it's often used when it comes to talk about testing or or judgment. Let me give you some other examples. First, we can remember that in the days of Noah... 
It rained for how many days and nights when the flood came? Forty. The Jewish spies in Numbers chapter 14 explored Canaan for 40 days. The nation of Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. The giant Goliath taunted the army of Israel for 40 days in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And now we see the Lord giving the people of Nineveh 40 days to repent and turn from their wickedness. The other word we have to pay attention to in Jonah's short message is the word overthrown. And this is actually a word that has two different meanings. And these two meanings are actually a distinction between Jonah and God here. And what I mean by that is that the word overthrown could mean destroyed, but it also implies this possibility of God giving mercy to the, uh, to the Ninevite people if there is repentance. And this double meaning is not lost on Jonah. In fact, the idea that the people of Nineveh might repent and be forgiven is the reason that Jonah had fled in the first place in chapter 1. But the difference we need to see here between God and between Jonah is that God sent Jonah to Nineveh in hopes that the people would be overthrown through repentance, while Jonah reluctantly preached the message in hopes that they would be overthrown through annihilation. Do you see the difference? We want to be sure that we ourselves take on the attitude of God here rather than Jonah when we consider our own enemies. Let me ask you this very in-your-face question. I ask myself this as well. Think about this. Would you rather the person who hurt you most in life be destroyed or rather be restored to God? Think about that. That's a big one. Because I'll tell you what my initial reaction is. God destroyed them yesterday. But that is not the heart that we see from God here. We want our hearts to be in line with God's, his desires for compassion, for reconciliation, for repentance. We are to be a people of grace because we have been shown incredible grace. Now let's go back to verse number five. We're going to see Nineveh's response. So we saw Jonah's response a moment ago. Now we're going to see Nineveh's response Take a, good, take a look again at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What an incredible response here. Like this is the best response that you could possibly get. And notice it wasn't because of his sermon. Like in the Bible here, uh, Jonah literally uses eight words. It wasn't, yay, Jonah, for your incredible message. This was a movement of the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of an entire city, and the Ninevites' response to God's word is perfect. And the response here is threefold. First, it says they believed. What did they believe? They believed that they were in the wrong, and if you think about it, that really is the first step to salvation. We have to understand that we are, are sinners, and because we are sinners, we are separated from God. The Ninevites believed they were wrong, but they also believed that if they didn't turn from their sin and turn to obedience to him, they would be destroyed. They believed that God's word was true. They believed that they were sinful, 
and deserving of punishment, and they believed that God was extending grace to them, and this was the opportunity to receive it. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe in such a way like the Ninevites did here? Not only did they believe, but it says that they heard the word of God and then they fasted. What does that mean? Why is fasting so significant here? Well, fasting is defined as a deliberate and generally prolonged avoidance from eating and sometimes drinking as a means of humbling oneself before God. Fasting was observed as a sign of sorrow and regret for doing wrong. The Ninevites who were confronted with their sin didn't try to make excuses. They didn't deny it. They didn't blame others. They simply humbled themselves before God in hopes that he would forgive them. And he did. And then lastly, we see the Ninevites from the greatest of them, the Bible says, to the least of them, they put on sackcloth. Now, be honest, when I was a kid, I, I read this, and I'm like, what is sackcloth? Somebody told me it's like a sack that potatoes come in. I'm like, I've never seen potatoes come in a sack before. What are you talking about? I, I don't understand. But sackcloth was this rough, dark material of spun and woven goat's hair that was often worn for multiple reasons. First, during mourning, people were sad. Uh, as a sign of repentance, which is what we see here, it was worn during times of great national distress, and it was worn by captives, people who had been captured because of war or whatever reason. And the symbolic value of sackcloth here came from its association with poverty because sometimes it was the normal attire of poor people to wear sackcloth. So instead of taking their normal clothing, or instead of wearing their normal clothing, taking it off, putting on sackcloth, they are doing this because they are once again, they are humbling themselves before God and showing repentance not only to one another, but to God himself. The people of the city at this point were truly remorseful of their sin, and they acted in such a way as to appeal to God's grace should he see fit to forgive them. Church, the heart of the Ninevites here is what our hearts should look like in regards to sin. We have nothing to offer God but our sinful, broken lives in exchange for his grace and forgiveness. We can't impress him with our good behavior. We can't do enough good things for God to say, okay, now you're accepted because you did X, Y, Z number of good deeds. No, God needs nothing from us. So we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that if we can't trade with him good deeds for his salvation, we have to accept God on his terms. And the Bible says it takes faith and trust in Jesus only. We, not, we cannot earn salvation by promises of obedience or service. But God, according to his own will, decided to offer us a relationship with him as a gift. As a gift. On the basis of faith in Jesus. Stop trying to think you have to have it all together. Because that's not true. 
We have to submit ourselves fully to him, offering our lives to Jesus completely. And if we do, he promises eternal life. He promises a relationship with him. God is the one who establishes what he will do and what we will do. He is the one in charge, not us. I don't know about you, but I need a reminder of that all the time. So we saw Jonah's response. We saw the city of Nineveh's response. Now let's look at the king of Nineveh's response in verses six through nine. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them need let them not feed or drink water and let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Like those in the city, the king humbles himself as well. He seeks God's forgiveness and turns from his sin. And not only does he do that, but he issues this proclamation because he's the king. He still has you know, authority in Nineveh. And he makes this proclamation that everybody needs to basically do what it is that he's doing. And of course, we, we can't say that the Ninevites automatically had faith because of the decree of a king. But understand this, when a leader leads from a position of humility and is courageous enough to admit when they are wrong, it can be extremely influential to those who follow him. And in this proclamation, we hear the king call for the same things that the people had done before, to fast, to wear sackcloth, to cry out to God, to turn from their evil and violence and hold out hope that God would relent and would show compassion. I mean, the king is so serious about this proclamation and about this commitment that he says he wants the animals to not be fed and to wear sackcloth. Like, that's commitment. And this is fairly severe. It is. But it's severe because the king truly realizes the severity of his own sin and the sin of the city, and he wants to seek forgiveness with everything that he has. No eating, no drinking, put on sackcloth, put sackcloth on the animals. We need to pray because we are in sin. If we pray and turn from our sin, God might relent and forgive us. That is what the king is saying here. Unfortunately, it seems that in today's day and age, we have lost this sense of awe in God. Would you agree? We have lost our sense of God's holiness, and that's not good. Instead, may we all have an understanding like the Ninevite king here of our sinfulness before God and our need to humble ourselves before him and to receive his grace and forgiveness. We all need that. Finally, we come to the most important response of all. We looked at Jonah's response. We looked at the city of Nineveh's response. We looked at the Ninevites' king's response. Now let's look at God's response. Verse 10. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You know, we have seen God in the book of Jonah as a loving father who talks to his children, who offers second chances, and now we see an incredible love and compassion and grace from God as he relents from bringing destruction to the Ninevite people who deserved it. You know, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I think we've got that on the screen, says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is compassionate. He is described throughout the Old Testament as slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He loves you deeply. He created you. He longs for you to be reconciled from your sin into a relationship with him. But we have to understand that while God is gracious, he is equally righteous. He has given us commands and they hold true. He has set in place very clear boundaries and there are very real consequences to ignoring those commands. God desires to show mercy. He wants to display his heart and his glory through compassion, but we have to understand that we have a responsibility to respond to him. The Ninevites weren't rescued simply because they heard the word of the Lord, but it says in Scripture that God saw what they did, notice the difference, not just hearing, but doing, and how they turned from their evil ways. And so as we land here this morning, I want to offer you a few reflection questions that I hope that you would consider and I myself consider as well. Here's question number one. Like the Ninevites, what might God be calling you to turn from today? Perhaps you have not aligned your attitude with God's in loving your enemies Maybe you understand and respect God's holiness, but you're not living in righteousness yourself. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but we're talking about a lifestyle here. Or perhaps you've never confessed your sin to God and submitted control of your life to Him. Perhaps today is the day that you need to do that, that you do need to surrender your life and accept His offer of salvation. Here's question number two. Who is God calling you to share the gospel with to include repentance from sin? Did did you notice that qualifying statement at the end? To include repentance from sin, that's important. That's not to say that someone needs to get their life together before they can come to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, that's not the gospel. But our world needs to hear that trusting in Jesus means a willingness to experience radical life change. It means recognition of our sinfulness and a desire to turn away from that sin. Chances are there's somebody on your heart and on your mind right this moment that you know needs to hear the gospel of Jesus and that someone could and should be us. We have the good news and God has called us to share it. 
And question number three, in what areas of your life are you underestimating the grace and compassion of God? I think at first Jonah did that. I think he underestimated. But make no mistake, God was able to save the Ninevites. And if you do some research about them, they were some wicked, wicked folks. They really were. In doing that research, I read that there, were, there was artwork from them that would often emphasize war, including executions, impalements, removal of skin from prisoners, and beheadings. It's, it's pretty bad. And then it was also a center of massive pagan worship and practices. Yet God, in his compassion and in his grace, through Jonah, saved them. In fact, if, if God was willing to save such a massively sinful, warlike enemy of God, he can save and redeem you and your life. Too often, you know, we are inclined to think that we're, we're too far gone or we've screwed up too much for God to save us. And church, let me tell you, that's just not true. Through his grace and compassion, God can save you. He can redeem every single area of your life, including your very life itself. We just have to be willing to stop underestimating God and to let him do it. In a moment, we're going to sing, and we'll have our prayer partners up front if you'd like someone to pray with you. And then at the conclusion of our service out in the commons, there will be elders available. They will have lanyards on. They would love to speak with you as well. Let me encourage you today to respond to God's grace and compassion in whatever capacity that he's calling you to do so this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your compassion. Lord, it's true that these Ninevites, by our standard, didn't deserve forgiveness because of the degree of their wickedness. But Lord, thankfully, our standard is not the right one. It's your standard that is willing and ready to save all people. And through the life of Jonah here, we saw a wicked people come to repentance and faith in you. Lord, perhaps there is somebody here today that needs to do the very same thing. That needs to recognize their sin as the Ninevites did. That needs to recognize that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves by our own merits and our own doing. But that we need you, Lord. And that through faith and trust in Jesus, we can be saved as well. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that's on the fence, that isn't sure, that has questions, I pray you would give them the courage to step out in faith. And that today would be their day of salvation. And Lord, there may be those of us who are Christians, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus but we've had areas of our lives where we have failed to look and behold your holiness. We're just kind of living in such a way as, oh, God will forgive me, it's okay. And while that's true, God will forgive us, 
Lord, you also call us to live a, a life of holiness as well. So perhaps somebody needs to come and talk to a prayer partner and, or talk to an elder or maybe even talk to a, a friend in the congregation and they need to confess some sin and they need to receive your forgiveness and maybe make a change in the right direction. Lord, bless our time together as we continue to worship as we have this response time. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and compassion that none of us deserve, but we are so unbelievably thankful that we can have. It's in your name I pray. Amen.